Welcome to week 45 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week is a little likely to be somewhat meandering, as I follow the path that led me to read what I think is possibly the most important book on this list. Yup, even more important than Shakespeare, Homer and Harriet the Spy. Those works matter hugely to me as an individual, but I believe that Sen's Development as Freedom should be one of the key books that is a blueprint for our future on Earth. Last month, the author, the Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen, was 90. His most recent book is a memoir, Home in the World, an exploration of the influences from his childhood and his early years as an academic. He is a prodigious writer, having produced 30 books, some on his own, others with collaborators, most notably Martha Nussbaum and Jean Drez. Since 1960, he has explored inequality, development, poverty, quality of life and deeper engagement with concepts of capacity, capability, freedom and justice. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1999, partly for the work which became the foundation for this week's book, Development as Freedom. Economic and social development have been part of the fabric of my life. In 1966, I think I've mentioned before, my father started working for the World Bank, the umbrella organisation for the IBRD, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the IDA, the International Development Association. He started out as a junior loan officer, a graduate position, assigned to a country and there to assist in the negotiation and administration of the loans arranged between the bank and countries around the world. His first missions were to Argentina, but quite early on, he was assigned to support missions to Korea and Taiwan throughout the early 1970s. By the time I visited Taiwan for Christmas and New Year of 1992 to 1993, and then Korea in 1997, these countries were sophisticated and fully industrialised societies. As I travelled on buses, trains and in taxis around Taipei and Seoul, I wondered what my father would have made if he and what he would have seen when he was travelling regularly to these cities in the 1970s. My stepmother was also a world banker, starting as a junior in debt an analysis and restructuring, working initially in Chad and Cameroon. Then, after the dismantling of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union in Hungary and other Eastern European countries, eventually becoming principal debt and finance specialist in the credit risk department, as well as the World Bank representative to the Paris Club and Bern Union of Insurers, unofficial groupings of creditor countries that meet to look at ways to resolve the problem of those countries carrying significant levels of debt that they cannot really service. Malvina had a long and distinguished career navigating her time at the bank with grace and purpose. Like all big organisations with thousands of staff and complex hierarchies, career trajectories and limited leadership opportunities, the bank was, as far as I could understand as a child and teenager listening to their conversation at the dinner table, rife with infighting and jockeying for position and preferment. Office politics, and certainly where my father was concerned, seemed to be carried out at an extraordinarily complex and stressful level. That impression is most likely a product of my father's 
innate cynicism and his fundamental discomfort, trapped by the generous benefits and package in an organisation that I suspect really did not suit him. It left me unconvinced about the role and influence of the World Bank, the effectiveness of large-scale financial interventions, and about the goal of industrialization of all nations. Although I had visited Pakistan as an 18-year-old, until I was in my mid-twenties, I had not travelled to any other developing or newly industrialised countries. My first visits were to Malaysia and Thailand then to Nigeria, before living for some years in China, where I visited Vietnam and India. My visit to Nigeria was as a journalist in a group. We were shepherded by shell and highly curated. But in China, India and Vietnam, it was easier to see extremes of overt poverty and overt wealth, as they are here in Brazil, where I now live. Given the wealth and resources available in the world, I do find it hard to reconcile the fact that 20% of the world's population, some 1.2 billion people, still exist in the state defined by the UN and Amartya Sen as extreme poverty, deprived of basic human needs such as food, water, basic sanitation, healthcare and education. When I see newspaper articles about billionaires sunning themselves on their yachts, building their fancy survival bunkers in New Zealand, their space rockets and harvesting plasma from their own children, it induces a degree of disgust. Those hundreds of thousands spent on plasma transfusions, those millions spent on a yacht or a bunker, how life-altering that could be not just for individuals, but for whole economies. I went through a shift in my attitude to development at some point when we were living in Brussels. Two different impulses guided me and made me much less cynical. The first was finding a way to make a small difference. Whilst in Brighton, we had sponsored a child, with most of the funds going to the village where she lived, but it left a tricky taste in the mouth to discover that we were being asked suddenly to sponsor a different child when this one, rather than receiving secondary education, was taken out of school and had an arranged marriage at the age of around 12. I began to look for a different model of supporting individuals and development. I'd vaguely heard of microfinancing and found an organisation, Kiva, where you can loan money to different enterprises and individuals all around the world. There were women's groups, individuals looking for education or to be able to purchase an instrument so that they could play music for a living, the opportunity to buy livestock or materials for a collective uh, enterprise. You could see exactly who you were funding and how they planned to spend the money. And best of all, it wasn't a donation, but a loan, which, when paid back, could be re-donated. After a couple of years of monthly investment, it was possible to roll over your dollars with only minor administrative costs. And the repayment rate was high, fluctuating between 83 and 87% with relatively few defaults. It was really rewarding to check the website every now and then, see the money that had come into the account and send it out again to some different part of the world and some different type of activity. 
The second influence was completing the final and for me the most interesting module of my master's in education. I had chosen a module about human rights and education, which introduced me to the work of the first UN Special Rapporteur for Education, Katarina Tomasevsky, who sadly died in 2006. She was pretty critical of the World Bank's impact on education in developing countries, amongst many other things. But this unit of work and her work also introduced me to Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, and in particular, their ideas about human capabilities. For me, the human capabilities approach was revelatory. It is probably most succinctly explained in Sen's 1999 book, Development as Freedom, and Nussbaum's 2000 book, Women and Human Development. Both Sen and Nussbaum have extended and expanded on the approach in separate explorations of capability and justice and freedom. Sen's fundamental approach is that development should expand human freedom. A really simple idea on the face of it. I don't know if this still seems revolutionary. When I look around at our world two decades on from his initial book, I fear that human freedom has, if anything, shrunk. Opportunity and human capacities appear to have reduced and we're seeing stark attacks on the basic premise that we humans should be supporting and protecting each other. There is, I fear, a spirit of resentment and mean-spirited exclusion abroad that eats away at our compassion and common sense. It is clear that we are in a period of mass migrations as climate change and conflict, in some cases interwoven, make it impossible for many people to remain in what is left of their homes after severe weather events or war or both have inflicted impossible damage. It is easy to see the trajectory that has taken us down this path, a path of increasing fear, decreasing freedom, more conflict, less stability, financial crises, populism, failures in liberal democracy and diplomacy. It is a long and complicated path from the 1999 publication of Development as Freedom to the world of today where inequalities of wealth and opportunity seem to me wider than ever where women's rights are retreating, whether we're looking at the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan or the assault on women's reproductive freedom in the US. But rereading Sen in particular reminded me of why in 2008 and 2009, I so responded to his calm, reflective approach to philosophical, economic and social considerations of freedom. Why it's so important to blend the freedom of individuals with broader social conditions and contracts, and ultimately why, as the great Polish poet Czesław Miłosz put it, in spite of fires on the horizon, castles blown up, tribes on the march, we must remember that we humans, our desires, our dreams, our aspirations and hopes, are derived, as Miłosz put it, from radiance from heights. It is no automatic or easy connection between Miosh's wondrous poem and yet the books and Sen's occasionally dry explorations of human freedom and capability, but I think they share a belief in human potential, 
and sadly, in Sen's case, a deep sense of the waste of human potential through lack of freedom. Now, with terrible events unfolding in Ukraine, in Israel and Gaza, in South Sudan, we need to work harder than ever for equity, freedom and justice for our fellow humans. We cannot shirk or avoid it. What does capability really mean? The concepts that I took away from Sen and Nussbaum's work, both together and separately, were the following. First, there is the idea of personal agency. This seems to me one of the fundamentals of our duties as both parents and in school as educators. We are there to help children move from those delightful, strenuous years where they are initially totally dependent and then gradually dependent on the adults around them to the time when they can make their own decisions, take responsibility and ownership for those decisions and work with the consequences. Agency is contested. We see right around the world examples of deliberate attempts to remove agency from people to undermine our opportunities and freedoms. From the perspective of young people in the UK, for example, the Brexit vote, which for some symbolised increased freedom through greater sovereignty and lack of limitations on trade, to most young people, and some of us older people too, it represented a significant reduction in our freedoms, notably freedom of movement across the EU. And this takes us to the whole business of freedom. As with agency, it is a multifaceted word with many interpretations and contested again. I particularly valued Sen's exploration of capability as freedom with genuine, authentic, what he calls real opportunity. The realness, the authenticity is the key. Living in Brazil, it is easy to find examples of this. There is a thorough legal framework in this country which supports equality and opportunity for women, for the many people of different ethnicities, for LGBTQ plus individuals. It prevents and outlaws discrimination. But the truth is that for women, for black people, for non-heterosexual communities, Brazil is a very dangerous place. It has one of the highest levels of gender-based violence in the world, alongside racial discrimination in the courts, from police brutality and from homicide, which has increased thanks to Bolsonaro loosening restrictions on the ownership and freedom to use guns. There is a legal framework that attempts to protect freedoms from oppression and violence and discrimination, but it does not begin to achieve the actual day-to-day -day freedom from violence that is essential to human thriving and development. Legislative freedom does not come close to what Sen would consider real freedom, the freedom to achieve certain basics, as mentioned before, a long and healthy life, access to the resources and services that permit a decent standard of living, the safe food and water, shelter and clothing, sanitation, education, health services, and that actively take us from surviving to thriving. But then beyond these basic needs, there is a deeper, broader freedom that gives us all as individuals the freedom to pursue activities and experiences that we ourselves can value 
and as important can be valued by wider society. This takes us to an opportunity not simply for us as individuals, but as societies. It gives us the opportunity to move away from limited measures of economic success, such as GDP, to decouple from human endeavour the utilitarian considerations where we judge the usefulness of individuals in society. This allows us to move from reductive measurements of material success and consumer expenditure to a space, a society, a world where we celebrate our humanity and what we can do what we can be, rather than how much we earn. From the moment I began reading Sen, his theory of human capability made complete sense to me as an individual, as a teacher, and as a small and insignificant person in a huge, complex world. As I listened to the unpalatable rhetoric of British politicians declaring their intention to ship asylum seekers to Rwanda, as I hear Republicans rejoicing about the increasing limitations they are putting on women's reproductive rights, the endangerment of women's lives as a result, as we hear horrific accounts of Hamas atrocities against Israeli civilians and the terrifying, terrible consequences of the bombardment of Gaza, as the stories of censorship and suppression come from Putin's Russia, as we see sidelined the appalling treatment of Uyghurs by Xi Jinping Ping's China, I think of the nature of real freedom, of agency, of capability, and how more and more we need to be, we should be working, both as individuals and in our institutions and organisations, so that step by step, little by little, we create the places in the world where freedom, true freedom, can flourish. Next week, I'll be sharing my response to the wonderful novel by David Mitchell, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot, one of the last novels I read before we sadly had to leave Brussels. See you then.